0: Culture and all things Shades. My name is Jonathan Hayes, and you're probably wondering why, Jonathan, are you doing the intro to this podcast instead of the voice that we are used to hearing, that of the one, the only, John Mark Duro. Well, it's because this is a bit of a weird week in the state of Alabama. Uh, the weather has been very interesting. First of all, we had a holiday uh, on Monday. It was Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And so most people either got the day off, you know, schools were out, but then schools were out again on Monday because we got a little bit of snow on Monday, which we have no infrastructure to deal with in Alabama, obviously. So even the threat of snow tends to like shut everything down, mainly because obviously the roads can get icy and that can become a dangerous situation. I heard about lots of wrecks that happened on Monday, and so I hope. Most of you were able to, or all of you, were able to stay home, stay safe. Uh, But then schools were closed again today on Wednesday as I'm recording this right now. And so because schools are closed, that puts people having to take care of their kids, figure out other arrangements, and then the roads were still supposed to be not the safest this morning. Well, we normally record uh, Shades Midweek on Wednesday mornings, so we knew... We're not all going to be able to make it into the office. We're not all going to be able to be together. What are we going to do this week? Well, we're going to pull an old uh, trick out of our hat, as it were. Every now and then when we can't do a new episode for you, we do what we call a greatest hits episode. And that's where we just simply pull an old sermon from the archives at Shades and we play it on Shades Midweek as kind of like a substitute episode. So that's what we're going to do since the us, I'm not even in the office. I'm not in Three Stream Studio. This might be the first ever episode of Shades Midweek recorded not in Three Stream Studio. And I recognize it's not an entire episode it's just the intro to this but where am i you might ask i am in what i affectionately refer to as walk in studios that is correct i am sitting in mine and my wife's walk in closet <laughs> like i'm 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 100% legitimate telling the truth many of you know some of you may not know I am a, a very, very amateur uh, musician. I was in youth ministry for many years, and when you're in youth ministry, it's kind of obligatory that you learn how to play guitar so you can lead worship. And so, and even before that, when I was in middle school and high school, I did play drums a little bit in my youth group's uh, praise and worship band. So I've been involved in music for a long time, and through throughout the process of that, I, I played in bands here or there. I get into, you know— home recording and such, yada, yada, yada. Anyway, so I've always kind of dabbled in those things. And so I have this little bitty amateur uh, studio <laughs> set up in my walk. It's my half of the walk-in closet. Holly's half is like a normal closet. And, and you may be thinking, like when I describe that, you may be thinking, oh my goodness, they must have like a ginormous uh, walk-in closet. Oh no, 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 no. Um, if I was going to do a rough estimate right here, I would say this sucker is probably six feet wide by maybe, well, no, it might even be smaller. It might only be six feet deep by like five feet wide. Yeah, I'm going to say five by six. And so it is tight, tight up in here. And And I should take a picture and send it to John Mark just of my side, and he could post it, I guess, maybe to the Instagram so you could see the situation we're dealing with here. Maybe we'll do that, maybe not. But anyway, that's what's going on. So we do hope that all of you are staying safe and warm. Uh, I stockpiled some wood, got a fire going. Uh, As far as I know, John Mark's doing great. Brad's doing great. We have been in touch and and, and called each other and talked yesterday and such. But we're all just trying to survive this apocalyptic weather we're... Absolutely not having like, that's the thing. If you look outside, it doesn't look like a big deal, but I do hope everybody's staying safe and staying off the roads. So what sermon have I pulled for you uh, today? Well, over the course of the, I, di- I didn't go that deep into the archives because over the course of the last year, um, I actually preached what has probably been one of my favorite sermon series that I've ever gotten to do. Maybe ever. I don't I, I don't know. Um, throughout the years, uh, of preaching, I have discovered that I absolutely love preaching Old Testament narrative. Uh, I wouldn't have said that was the case for the longest time. Like if you had, uh, just asked me, even when I just first showed up to shades, Jonathan, what's your favorite thing to preach? I would have probably given you this really stereotypical Protestant evangelical pastor answer. Pa- Paul's letters love to preach some Romans and stuff like that. And I do love I do love preaching. we're preaching through Paul's letters right now we're pre- we're preaching through First Corinthians. But over the years, just as i as I've gotten to preach um, various portions of Old Testament narrative, it has absolutely become my favorite. i I, I think part of it is uh, one, um there there's a certain ease to preaching narrative uh, as a preacher because you're following the flow of a story. Um, two, we, we all love story. We love storytelling. Um, and the Bible is the greatest story ever told. And then three, if I've been, have I been going one, two, three, anyway, whatever next. Um, I think, uh, I, I think I just love seeing the old Testament so clearly through the lens of Christ and the way that the Lord was telling the same story the whole time and, and, and dropping all of these foreshadowing hints, these types, these, these images, all of these things that were going to culminate in the story of Christ. And yeah, I just, I just love it. Judge, I I also particularly love um, <coughs> preaching difficult passages in scripture, the things that we normally shy away from, because I think that when, when the spirit works and, and breaks through those really difficult texts, I, I just think that there is a very deep beauty to behold. Um, and that's often in texts that are incredibly dark. And I think that the, the beauty is so bright right there because of the darkness. Like that's what the gospel does. The gospel goes to the heart of darkness. It goes down into death, down into a tomb, and there we behold resurrection and life. And and so Judges is like the darkest book in the Old Testament, and so I love just going there and getting to see the the beauty and the the, the bright, spellbinding glory of Christ shine forth. So, as we went through uh, the book of Judges in, in a series called "When All of the Lights Go Out." Uh, I, oh, that may be another reason I loved the sermon series, just because that's, that's taken from Tolkien right there. And everybody knows I'm a little bit obsessed with Tolkien. Anyway, uh, as we went through that series, uh, there were some, uh, passages and judges that I was familiar with. And there were others that I was not. And one that like, I knew his story, but I'd never studied it deeply, uh, was Ehud you the left-handed judge and just as i studied that story and just the truths that emerged from it 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 captured my imagination and my affections and quickly became my favorite so that's the sermon that we are going to play for you today it was preached in november of 2022 so over a year ago and the title is a left-handed savior And it comes from Judges chapter 3, verses 12 to 30. So, without any further ado, here is that sermon, A Left-Handed Savior.
1: Judges 3, 12 to 30. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. (coughs) Excuse me. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the son of Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bounded on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. <laughs> and he, he ate a lot of carbs. Um, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal. And said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, And thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade. And the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly. And the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch. And closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him. And locked them. When he had gone the servants came. And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked. They thought, Surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, uh, they took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord, dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed. And he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syra. When he arrived... He sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. This is the word of the Lord.
0: All right, let's pray and dive into the word. Father, we are grateful. grateful that everything you give us in your word is a good gift from you and I pray that by your spirit who inspired this word you would unwrap the good gift for us this morning that we would see clearly the kind of savior that you are and that we would see more clearly in the midst of of darkness we would see more of the brightness of the gospel we love you we pray these things in the name of your son Jesus by your spirit amen So if you haven't already, I do invite you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 3. You're going to want to follow along with this one. It's rather funny. At least it's supposed to be. Judges chapter 3. We're encountering the second cycle. Remember, Judges is made up of several cycles where this basic plot is going to repeat itself. And we're entering into the second cycle of sin and salvation in the book of Judges. Now, if you can recall, last time we were together... We walked through the first cycle and what we saw in that first cycle is the thing that lies at the heart of every cycle. Namely, we saw who the Savior is doing the saving in Judges, God. Yes, in every cycle of sin and salvation, we're gonna see God raise up a judge, a deliverer, a Moshiach, a Savior. We're gonna see him raise up this earthly Savior. We we saw that in the first cycle with Othniel, But if you remember, through Othniel's story, we saw highlighted for us the fact that it really isn't Othniel, it's really God who saves his people. We asked the question, who saved them? And we saw the answer clear as day, God. But that doesn't mean, as soon as I say that, and that's true, and that's at the heart of every single story we're gonna encounter, but as soon as I say that, I also wanna say that doesn't mean that the earthly saviors, the judges that we see in these stories, doesn't mean that they are unimportant. Because, as we say all the time at Shades, our God is God of means. He loves to work his power through things or through people, people like the judges. Yes, God is the one doing the saving, but he does it through these judges. So we need to look at them in order to learn more about him. You see how that works? Like, God is the one at the heart of the saving. So when we look at the judges that he uses to do the saving, they actually reveal things about God's heart. When we look at these judges, we're mainly seeing truths about God and the kind of savior that he is. And today we learn he is a left-handed savior. I believe that is what the second cycle of sin and salvation reveals through the judge that it shows us, the savior that's raised up, Ehud. Shades, this is good news. It is good news that God chooses to use a left-handed, someone left-handed to save. And it is good news that he himself is a left-handed savior. It's good news that God chooses to use the left-handed save, and it is good news that he himself is a left-handed savior. I believe that that truth right there is what we desperately need to see this morning at this specific moment in history and at this specific moment in our body. Confused? Intrigued? Look into the text with me, and let's see the good news of a left-handed Savior. Judges 3, starting in verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And Eglon gathered to himself Ammonites and the Amalekites, and he went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. The people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. If you remember, I've told you that these cycles that come at us come at us in six steps or six phases. You probably don't remember them. I've tried to make them as memorable as possible by giving them all an R or an R sound. They are rebellion, wrath, regret, rescue, rest, repeat. All of those are gonna be present in this story right here in front of us and what we're seeing right here. And these verses are the first two. We see rebellion. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And we see wrath. The Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. And we've seen all of this before, right? And we saw all of this in the story of Achim. But there are a few things that are new right here that we need to pay attention to. This story specifically is filled with satire. It's filled with irony. It's it's kind of like an SNL sketch. Welcome to Sabbath Night Live, everybody. I've been waiting all week to drop that joke. (laughs) This story is meant to make you laugh. When you all laughed earlier, you're doing the right thing. Like it's meant to, to do that. We can see that as soon as we hear the king of Moab's name, Eglon. That's not his real name. That is, that is a nickname either given by our author or by the people to poke fun. That's something that never happens anymore. Nicknames are never given to people, politicians, in power in order to make fun of them. It's just not a thing. The name Eglon means little cow or calf we might say, what we're going to see is that this nickname cuts two ways satirically. It's it's a double-edged insult that doesn't just cut at Eglon. We can see how it's supposed to do that pretty immediately. But it doesn't just cut at him, it cuts at Israel. That's actually what we're encountering first right here in verses 12 to 14. I mean, Eglon might be getting called a calf, but this calf conquers Israel. He makes alliances with the Ammonites and the Amalekites. He takes possession of the city of Palms. That's the city of Jericho. If you remember the story of the battle of Jericho, that's the very place where God had once given his obedient people victory over their enemies. And now it's the very place where he gives his disobedient people over to their enemies. In defeat, and we're told why. It's because of their idolatry. That's what's getting highlighted for us satirically through Eglon's name. Look at verse 14. And the people of Israel served Eglon. They served this calf. King of Moab, 18 years. If that's not ringing any bells for you from Israel's past just yet, know that the word for served right there is the Hebrew word avad. It can mean work. Serve can also mean worship. Avad is what Adam did with God in the Garden of Eden. It's what the priests were to do in the tabernacle. It's what God said he was rescuing his people from Egypt for, to bring them out so that they might serve. Avad, worship him. You see right here what we're being told. The people of God served, or we might say, in a way, worshiped this calf. Does that not bring up anything from Israel's past? Perhaps maybe their first venture into idolatry where they worshiped a a golden calf. I mean, irony, anybody? I guess basically... The author saying, Israel, here you are again, basically in the same place that you began, bowing down to a cow, conquered by a a calf. A calf whose name seems like a one-sided insult right now. Like it only makes fun of Israel. Because honestly, currently, when I look at everything we're being told about King Eglon, all I see is a thriving king. In fact, King is exactly what he is called every stinking time we hear his name. Do you notice that? He's never just Eglon. He's Eglon, king of Moab. Eglon, king of Moab. Eglon, king of Moab. Did we mention this guy as a king? It's, it's like our author wants us to see all the positive things about this guy. Look at his wise war tactics as he makes alliances. Look at at his power as he conquers the city of Palms. Look, Look at Eglon, a wise and powerful king of this world. Like so far, I only see one edge to his name as it cuts Israel with deep and painful irony. That's all we would see if we didn't keep reading. Look at verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Regret. Rebellion, wrath, regret. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a Moshiach, a judge, a deliverer, a savior. In other words, here comes rescue. The Lord raised up for them a savior, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man, People of Israel sent tribute to him, by, by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. So the people cry out. Remember, this is not a cry of repentance, this is a cry of pain. And God still, out of his great mercy and grace, moves to act on their behalf. And it's like, all right, finally. Fine. All right, Eglon, Mr. wise and powerful. Now you got it coming. Our God's raising up a savior for us? Let's see what your power and wisdom look like when set next to this savior. But then we see this savior. And the blade of irony is just driven deeper. Because what do we see? We get Ehud. And aside from his name, which we'll talk about in just a second, aside from his name, we get two ironic Details about him that near about make us despair. First, he's from the tribe of Benjamin.
1: Yay.
0: Benjamin is this small, unimpressive tribe. They've only been mentioned once so far in the book of Judges. It was back in Judges chapter 1 and verse 21, and it was just to highlight the fact that they were a failure. They're going to get featured rather prominently in the conclusion of the book of Judges for the same reason to just show us how big of a failure they are. As a whole, the book of Judges really makes us ask, can anything good come out of Benjamin? Thus far, Ehud is not an impressive savior, and it only gets worse, because we're not just told first that he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Second, we're told that he's left-handed. Great. The... The Hebrew wording right here, it could actually mean that Ehud's literally handicapped. It could mean that his right hand doesn't work at all. Or more likely, and I think, this is what I think is probably true, it just means that he's left-handed. Either way, it's not great. No offense to any of my left-handers. Left, do I have left-handers? Where are you? Left-handers, come on, proud. Andrew, yeah. Yeah, y'all can all like form a club. It'd be great. All right. No offense, but in ancient Israelite culture, your left-handedness would not have been seen as unique and special and as an advantage, uh, especially if you were a uh, man of military age because your right hand was your sword hand. It's It's your strong hand that you fight with in order to save and bring salvation. This is why the right hand actually becomes a symbol used all throughout scripture as a symbol of power and a symbol of salvation. For instance, Exodus 15 and verse six, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Stuff like that's all over the place, especially in the Psalter. Ehud is weak, see this shades, Ehud is weak in the very place a Savior needs to be strong. The fact that he's from the tribe of Benjamin only drives this irony home further. Does anyone know what the name Benjamin means? Son of the right hand. He is a left-hander from the tribe of the right-handed. Surely he is aptly named. Ehud means where is the splendor? Where is the majesty? Because we surely don't see it when we look at this savior. Especially when we set him next to Eglon, king of Moab. Eglon looks like power and wisdom incarnate. Ehud looks like weakness and foolishness. Perhaps, I can't prove this, but perhaps that's why his fellow Israelites give him the job of taking tribute to Eglon so that Eglon could see these people. They're, they're not a threat to his rule. They're not warriors. They're weak. There's nothing to worry about. Perhaps, perhaps that was the people's plan in sending Ehud. We don't know for sure, but what we do know for sure is that Ehud had a different plan for going. Look at Verse 16. And he who'd made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, anywhere from 12 to 18 inches. It's basically a dagger, a short sword. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. A right-hander would strap their weapon to their left side. That's the side they're going to draw from. This is the side you'd actually be looking for a weapon to be at. What he's doing is actually fairly wise here playing to his own strengths. Verse 17, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. So, he would craft some short sword, a double-edged dagger, that's easy for piercing. And this double-edged dagger is also revealing to us the other edge of Eglon's name. Did you notice right here for the first time at the end of verse 17 for the first time Eglon is named without calling him king. It's so that we won't miss the irony. Now Eglon was a very fat man. Or we might say now this little calf had grown very fat. It was a fattened Calf. You ever heard the term fattened calf in the Bible before? Do you know what it means that that calf is ready for? See this. In, In all his wisdom and power, Eglon is being pictured for us as a calf fattened ready for slaughter. Like, Like, this is when the back row of Sabbath night live starts snickering. Because they know what's coming. And so Eglon's being pictured that way for us. And then here's Ehud in all of his weakness and foolishness. And he's literally the one sharpening the knife. It is beginning to look like everything that we've seen thus far is about to flip. Ehud brings tributes to Eglon. The Hebrew word for tribute right here likely indicates that this was a grain offering Israel was a agricultural society, so it makes sense. They would pay their tribute in some kind of produce, and it's right on the heels of that. that we're told Eglon has been growing fat. In other words, this is a picture of him growing wealthy off of his extortion of Israel. You gotta understand, like when it tells us here that Eglon was fat in the ancient Near East, that wasn't an insult. Fatness was associated with wealth. Like, Like again, this is another thing that would have symbolically set Eglon apart as powerful, wise, wealthy. But ironically, we are beginning to see it as weakness and foolishness. That he is a fattened calf for slaughter. Eglon's power and wisdom is beginning to look like weakness and foolishness. Perhaps, perhaps that also means... That what looks weak and foolish about Ehud is about to be revealed as power and wisdom. That's exactly what we see, Shades. Look at verse 18. And when Ehud finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal. They give the tribute, they leave, they get to basically the border of the country and all the people that were helping carry. He's like, you guys keep going. I left something, got something to turn around for. And he does an about face right in front of these idols near Gilgal. It was not uncommon for idols to be set up right at the borders of places. Now, this wasn't just to have like a oh, welcome, here's a place of worship. It wasn't just for that, but it was also almost like a statement of here are the gods who rule and reign here. It's right in front of them that Ehud turns around, like like as if to say to their face, we'll see who really rules and reigns over Moab today. I dare you to watch what I'm about to do. It's, It's like he's daring these idols, the gods of Moab, to prove they can see the plan that he is hiding on his right side. It's like he's daring them to prove that they are powerful and wise or be revealed as weak and foolish, lifeless lumps of stone. Ehud turns back. He arrives back and in verse 19 he says to the king, I have a secret message for you, O king. The Hebrew irony is thick right here. I really, so... As a church, we just collectively need to learn Hebrew, and then we'll all be able to belly laugh at all of the Hebrew jokes. I'm just kidding. But the Hebrew irony is thick right here because the word message, I have a secret message, devar, the word is hilariously vague. It can be a double entendre right here. It can mean message. It can also simply just mean thing. In other words... Eglon hears this, I've got a secret message for you, O king. But on our ears, Sabbath Night Live audience, we hear, I've got a secret thing for you, O king, and we know what that thing is strapped to his right thigh. Ehud's words are double-edged, just like his blade. And the king wants to hear them. So he sends everybody out, Verse 20, and Ehud came to him when he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. I want a cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. Eglon arose from his seat. Coom. I point out that Hebrew word for rose because it's been used once before. And again, a Hebrew audience hearing this, it would immediately take their ears back to verse 15 where we were told that God raised up a deliverer. And now Eglon rises up. And it's as if by using the same word the author is saying here comes deliverance. They're in this cool roof chamber, basically the king's man cave. Ehud gets him to stand up, put him in perfect position to execute his his plan, which then unfolds for us in super slow motion. This is very rare in scripture, but we get like a play-by-play in verses 21 to 23. Look at it. And Ehud reached with his left hand, and he took the sword from his right thigh, and he thrust it to Eglon's belly. The hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. This is how I read the Bible, y'all, sound effects included. It closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch, closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him, and locked them. Now, this room was awkwardly quiet while I read all of that. As adults, we read this and we're either disgusted, that's gross, Jonathan, why you do the sound effects? Or better yet, we get morally indignant. Like, shame on Ehud for all of this deception there's despicable assassination right here. How could God ever use such a savior? Oh, he's gonna use much worse shades. Much, much worse. And I am very, very thankful because it means he'll use someone as messed up as me. is that really what's going on right here? Horrid deception and a horrid assassination. I mean, we have to dismiss the fact that we are dealing with an oppressive tyrant who for 18 years has grown fat by impoverishing and extorting Israel. Like as modern Western adults, we hear this story the wrong way. If you want to see how this story should be heard, read it to a group of middle school boys. Because when they hear verses 21 through 23, the room is not silent at all. You can't get them to quit laughing. That's the way it's supposed to be. I mean, in Hebrew, this paragraph right here, it basically ends with a, a parallel punchline. You can kind of see it at the end of verse 22, beginning of verse 23. Look at it. We read, And the dung came out, then Ehud went out. Everybody's making an exit. That's how you're supposed to receive that. And for this king who looks so wise, he looks so powerful, his exit proves him to be weak and foolish when all his wisdom and power is reduced to a pile of poop. Even his fatness, like a very symbol of his status, has become the very means of his humiliation. All the while, Ehud's left-handedness has become the very means of salvation. Like, this judge who looked so Foolish and weak, his exit proves him to be powerful and wise. And and all this irony, all this irony turns the lament of God's people. You remember where they were at the beginning of the story? Crying out to God? Pain? Regret? Lament? It turns their lament, all this irony turns God's people's lament into laughter. And the whole thing just gets funnier. Verse 24, when Ehud had gone out, the servants came. And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, well, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. In other words, they smell poo. And they're like, huh, give the man his space. We know this situation. So they wait and they wait. Verse 25, and they waited until they were embarrassed. Yeah, yeah the, the SNL laugh light's going off again. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, nobody takes this long, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. I don't know if you noticed this, but after Ehud stabbed Eglon, he no longer gets named or titled. No longer Eglon, no longer king. All his wisdom and power reduced to weakness and foolishness. There lay their lord, dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed. Ha-ha! And he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syrah. Those idols, they couldn't stop Ehud. They could do nothing to protect Eglon. They could do nothing to stop Ehud because they were nothing. And now everybody knows it. Look at verse 27. When Ehud arrived, that's arrived back to his home country, he sounded the trumpet, takah. I give you that Hebrew word again because that original audience would recognize it. They heard it before. Back up in verse 21. This verb, when it's applied to a sword, it means to thrust. When it's applied to a trumpet, it means to blow or to blast. In other words, he is blasting forth the deliverance that has been achieved by his dagger, And everybody knows it. Everybody hears it. He sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country. And he was their leader. From Benjamin. Left-handed. Doesn't matter. Now everybody follows this left-handed savior. They have heard the trumpet declare the deliverance of his dagger. And it doesn't matter anymore that he's from Benjamin. It doesn't matter anymore that he's left-handed. God has flipped everything on its head. He has used... The foolish things to shame the wisdom of this world. And the weak things to shame the power of this world. And now God brings this great salvation to completion. The people follow Ehud down to the fords of the Jordan River to cut off the Moabites, attempt at retreat. Look at what happens in verse 29. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land had rest for 80 years, for two generations. 10,000 killed 10,000, about 10,000 Moabites. It's a a round number of completeness. All of these were strong, we're told, able-bodied men. In other words, they were powerful. They were the kind of warriors it was wise to use in war. And the foolish, weak, way of God wipes them out. Not a man escaped. This is complete rescue, and it leads to rest, all because of God's left-handedness. Shades, do you you see? Do you see what it means that God is a left-handed savior? It means that he doesn't use the means that this world sees as wise and powerful. No, he, he takes the exact opposite path to prove this world's wisdom isn't wisdom at all. It's foolishness. This world's power, it's not power at all. It's weak, it's laughable. Psalm 2. Verse two, the kings of this earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The heart of every king is like water in his hands, the proverb tells us. No tyrant, no king, no earthly source of political power. is any match for God and for his anointed savior. I don't care how left-handed his anointed savior looks. No one shades ever looked more left-handed, weak, foolish than our savior, the savior, Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 and verse 2, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Where's the splendor? Where's the majesty? He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with, with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Shades? This guy was born in a stinking manger, swept up sawdust for 30 years near about. His hometown, for crying out loud, was Nazareth. That's worse than him being from the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, we ask, can anything good come out of Benjamin? All you gotta do is turn to the Gospel of John, chapter one of verse 46, to hear it literally asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Shades by the world's standards it doesn't look any weaker it doesn't look any more foolish than jesus but the reality of 1 corinthians 1:24 1 is that christ jesus is the power of god and the wisdom of god he is the ultimate left-handed savior he's the answer he's the answer to ehud's name where's the splendor where's the majesty it's in jesus Shades, this is what we desperately need to see. And we desperately need to see it at this specific moment in history, in in this moment, at least in our context. As Christians in the West, specifically in America, we need to see this. Christians in our context are letting go of Christ left and right, and on the left and right, to cling to saviors that look a heck of a lot more like Eglon. Trusting in political power that I promise you, Shades, is just being fattened up to one day be revealed as weak. It may look wise right now, but one day it will be revealed for the foolishness that it is. Shades, I plead with you, do not trade Ehud for Eglon. Don't trade Jesus for just another passing power that the world has to offer you in this moment. It is moments like right now when it matters most. It matters most that we cling to Christ in foolishness and embrace weakness. It matters because that is when we witness to the world of where true power and wisdom lies in the hands of a left-handed savior. Shades. This is our good news. We ain't got no other gospel. This is our good. The good news of the gospel is that God is a left-handed savior, and and He loves to save the left-handed, the weak, the foolish. He loves to save the left-handed and use them to spread this gospel good news. God loves to save and use Ehud's like me and you. This, Shades, this is the good news that we desperately need at this specific moment in our body. There are so many, so many of you in hard places, I know, because we talk. So many facing things that make you feel weak and that make your faith seem foolish. Make the gospel seem and feel foolish. Shades. To you, I say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, consider your calling. My dear brothers and sisters, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. In other words, all of you were left-handed. Verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose your left-handedness. In this very moment, when you feel at your weakest, God chose you here to put the power of the gospel on display. He's a left-handed savior and he uses the left-handed to put his salvation on display. This uh, this past week, I flew to New Haven, Connecticut, uh, to be with Jason and Rena Kelly. For a long time, we have been praying together for their five-month-old son, Ezekiel. For those of you who don't know, Zeke had a, uh, a very rare form of muscular dystrophy. Virtually no strength at all. Virtually no muscle. Couldn't turn his head. lift his hand. And the disease was aggressively getting worse. There was nothing that uh, the doctors could do. And so on Thursday at 924 in the morning, Zeke left Jason Arena's arms to be held in Jesus's. And we wept in that hospital room for a long time. And we sat. And we talked. Cried as we talked. Laughed as we talked. And I I watched strength. I watched the strength of God be put on display amidst Jason and Rena's weakness. And I think if you ask them, they would tell you that they couldn't see that or feel it. But with every fiber, my being, I could shave. Especially, especially when the medical personnel were given permission to begin coming through the room. Doctor after doctor, nurse after nurse. Not, not just coming in to offer condolences, but to weep over the strength that they had seen displayed through Zeke. Those are their words, not mine. And they said those words not knowing what what I knew about Ezekiel's name. Do you know what the name Ezekiel means? God is strong. God's strength. Shades, D, 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 C. Without muscles. Zeke's life Bore witness to the strength of God. As his name declares, like through Zeke, God did and is doing what only God can do reveal his power through weakness, shades. That's what he does through you. This is the good news that we see. Through Ehud, our God is a left handed Savior, and he loves to work his powerful salvation through the left-handed like
1: you. Let's
0: pray. Father, there is no greater news than your gospel. No greater majesty, no greater glory It is able to enter in To everything and redeem it. Gotta pray for us as a people that amidst a moment when so many believers in our country, in the West, are tempted to place their faith in the power and wisdom of the world, I pray that you would make us a people who are different, a people who embrace what is weak and foolish, a people who embrace Jesus and cling to him no matter what. God, we are a people who are hurting. There are so many and heavy places in this body where it feels like every light possible has gone out. I pray that in the midst of that moment, you would reveal the brightness of the light of the gospel. That write specifically in their weaknesses where you would show your strength and prove that your gospel is not foolishness, but it is your wisdom. Gotta pray for Rena and Jason. That amidst unspeakable pain, they would know and cling to the reality that you are present. pray that we would stand amazed that you stay bear witness to the wonder of your strength as Zeke his life bears witness to that Or make us a people who see with your eyes of people who live our lives left-handed. For your glory, we pray these in the name of your son Jesus and by our spirit. Well, we hope you enjoyed listening to that sermon from Shades Valley Community Church. This has been an episode of Shades Midweek Greatest Hits. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. Uh, Email us midweek at shadesvalley.org. Give us your thoughts on the book of Judges, your thoughts on uh, sermons or messages that have really impacted your heart and life through the ministries here at Shades that maybe we could feature on another episode of Greatest Hits whenever, you know, we have uh, snowy weather again, which is virtually almost never. Uh, Once every couple of years, maybe. Anyway, email us midweek at shadesvalley.org because as Brad Brown likes to say here at Shades Midweek, you're part of the conversation.